Oh, Father, that those words would be indeed true as we sing them, that our fair Lord Jesus would indeed mean more to us than all the riches. Father, thank you for your grace now. Sustain us as we receive your word, and may this simply be a continuation of our worship, the careful listening of your word, the receiving of it, the meticulous desire and discipline to obey it, that all of this would bring honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ, that he would be our joy and our delight, our passion and our motivation for living in 2011. It's in his name alone that we've gathered and in his name alone that we take our Bibles and in his name alone that we pray. Amen. Well, I have been thinking a lot about a specific word lately, and the word is potential, potential. I think that it is driven by the reality, partly, that I turned 50 in 2010, and I think that it's not very long that I will soon be in a nursing home, because... As quickly as I got from 25 to 50, if it goes faster even from 50 to 75, there it is. You know, not that 75 is that old, but I've visited many breaking down and broken people by that time. And so life is going quickly, and I've been asking myself, have I accomplished what I'm supposed to accomplish in this life? Do you ever ask yourself those questions? Am I living up to my potential? Well, uh, Janty, Janny Santa Claus brought me, by my request, a funny request, but a brand new 11th edition of the Merriam-Webster Collegiate Dictionary for Christmas this year. And early this morning, I looked up the word potential. Here's what it says. Existing in possibility capable of development into reality. Did you get that? So we're not talking about pie in the sky. We're talking about real things that can happen. They just haven't. Definition number one, I repeat, existing in possibility, capable of development into reality. A second definition with parentheses of 1817 marked next to it was... Something that can develop or become actual. Something that can develop or become actual. Now, I have been assessing my own life. I find that easier to do at the flip of the calendar into the new year as we evaluate, okay, what's another year meant to us? What is another year coming as we anticipate? How am I thinking about it? What are my priorities going to be? I'm also concerned that corporately we as a church reach our potential. Boy, God has blessed us, hasn't he? In 2010, in years past. And I just think that it's important for us to just take the month of January and to just think about some priorities for our church. There are five weeks in January, and I want us to focus on some things that will help us reach our potential. Before I talk a little more about that for a minute, let me just illustrate what I mean by potential. 
Let's say that we get out of bed on our day off and we've got some, some old trees and brush and scrub that we need to clean out in our backyard. And so we have at it. We go to the shed and we get the old axe out and boy, we haven't hardly handled one of these. It's my grandfather's world here. But you know, there is a, a level of potential accomplishment right here in our hands. And so we flail away, but then it starts to get hard work. Our shoulders are tired and our hands are beginning to be calloused. And we think, what else do I have that I can apply to the task? And I look around and I go get my, my carpenter's uh, crosscut saw and I think, I'll do this for a while. And then I realize, and I just don't think that's what it's designed for. I mean, there is some potential here for accomplishment. We can do these things. And then I think to myself, what am I thinking about? I have the saw in the garage. And so I run in and I grab it and I begin to work it. But I don't start it. Now we're understanding the definition of potential. It can function and I can get a few things done, but it's really tiring my arms. But right here, what was our definition again? Our definition was existing in possibility, capable of development into reality, and that's what this cord and handle are all about, isn't it? And this combustion engine. You see, there's potential here for great accomplishment, and I can get some things done with it, but if I don't take the potential and step it up to reality, what good is it? It's the same as if it doesn't exist. You know, I wonder how many tools God has given us as individuals that we have allowed to lie dormant and we have allowed ourselves to live comfortably below our potential. And do you know that as Christians in our Christian walk that we live in the perfect culture here in America to allow ourselves to get away with living below our potential capacity of fulfillment in Christ? I'm afraid that corporately when we come together, oh, many good things happen. And we've been listing some of those things for the annual meeting coming in January. And what a blessing it will be to review that with you. All of the good things that have happened in January. And we'll talk about that. Do you know what I'm concerned? That we as a church are too comfortable living below our potential. I've put the definition of potential for our church like this. Potential, as we look through the lens of potential at Fellowship Bible Church, it is the possibility and capability of accomplishing what God has resourced us to do. Let me say that again. Looking through the lens of potential at Fellowship Bible Church, it is the possibility and the capability, it's not real potential if we're not capable of taking the possibility and accomplishing what God has resourced us to do. You know, I think about my illustration can be used in a variety of ways. In some ways, if you think about all the tools that God has given us for ministry and encouragement and blessing and potential for the kingdom of God and the building of his church, this would be, for example, on your calendar, you will find a page for love and Johanni Capesi. God has resourced them. They live in a third world country. They live in Malawi, Africa. They are dirt poor and they live in mud houses. 
But oh, do they swing away with all that God has given them. And they're faithful men. That's what God's called them to, isn't it? But I wonder sometimes if Fellowship Bible Church isn't more like this. And that we have the ability to rev this thing up and we haven't even started it yet. When you really think about all of the ways that God has resourced us as individuals and as a church at large. We're going to take five weeks, as I referenced just a minute ago. And we're going to let the Lord use the month of January as we launch a new year of 2011 to maybe poke us in the eye a little bit, maybe boot us into britches, and maybe some of us need uh, you know, a two-by-four upside the head as the Lord challenges our hearts and awakens us to get with it. What are we waiting for? Why are we so comfortable living below our potential? So today we're going to talk about the reality of the fact that our master could return in 2011 and we better be looking up and we better be ready to give an account. That's today laying the groundwork for this month of challenge to live up to our potential. Next week, we're going to take this week's message a step further and we're going to talk about stewardship. We're going to talk about our resources. We're going to today look up, talk about looking up and next week is living right. Taking the resources then that God has given us and putting them to use in the appropriate manner, laying up treasures in heaven instead of laying building bank accounts on earth. The third week is going to be about this topic, and I'm very convicted about this. And I think the Lord will use it in my life as I sit down with you and Stephen McKenzie takes the pulpit on the third Sunday in January. And he's going to talk about the importance of us being a praying church. If we're going to be the church, the individuals and the people that God wants us to be, we had better be a praying church. Is there really anything that defines us more as self-sufficient and arrogantly self-centered than prayerlessness? Right? It is proof of our Christian atheism. I don't need God, and I prove that by the fact that I never talk to God or pray. That's an overstatement, but we need that challenge, don't we? And if God is going to do a work in us, then we're going to have to be on our knees, aren't we? And I hope you'll join us as we pray for our missionaries specifically. One of the things we're convicted about is that we're really not upholding our missionaries in real, urgent, meaningful prayer time together as a church. That's what's going to start happening one Sunday night a month. The Lord's return, living right with our resources, praying. The fourth Sunday of January is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And I always try to address that in January. And I think it fits a study on the priorities of our church and where the passion of our church is as we recognize that if we don't care about these things, we probably don't care about anything. And as we talk about the condition of morality and the sanctity of human life in our country, we had better be a broken-hearted church that is crying over this and willing to truly be the salt in society in making a difference. And then the fifth and final Sunday is something that's growing on my heart as well, is the priority for our church to reach our potential in this neighborhood. And that means Jefferson County, the Eastern Panhandle. 
We want to be a global visionary ministry, missions-minded church. But God, forgive us for the complacency with which we view our neighbors who are lost and bound for hell. Amen? And so come with me and let's be challenged. Let's go this morning to a teaching that was given directly by our Lord Jesus that I think is very much directly pointed to this aspect of potential. Our Lord's teaching on reaching our potential. It's Matthew chapter 25. We're going to begin with verse 14. I invite you to turn in your Bibles there. Please do. Please follow along. It's important to bring your Bible to church. We study God's Word here as much as we can and make it the center of our Sunday morning worship, Matthew chapter 25, beginning with verse 14. This is a familiar story, if not even an overused story, but I still think it is very relevant to us on the aspect of meeting our potential. What would Jesus say to us that would motivate us to reach our potential? And then what is the key dynamic of this passage that will help us reach our potential and meet our potential? What will motivate us? Let's read the story. It's, it's Matthew chapter 25, beginning with verse 14, okay? Again, it will be like a man going on a journey. All right, now we're jumping into the middle of a passage when he says, again, it will be like, what's he talking about? If you look at the first verse of chapter 25, it says, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like... If you look back at chapter 24, Jesus is in the middle of a discourse teaching his disciples and answering some questions about times and dates of the Lord's return. You do know that the Lord is going to return, that Jesus is going to return. We just celebrated his first coming, didn't we? And you remember that interesting passage in Acts chapter 1? When Jesus was with his disciples, and then... And then get a load of this. You people really believe this stuff, don't you, in the Bible? It's crazy. They're talking to Jesus, and then, all of a sudden, and if words mean anything, and they do, and I believe every one of them, he literally, physically, went right up in front of them, up into the sky. Whoop! What is that all about? And so, remember the passage in Acts 1 where it says, And they stood there, and an angel appeared to them, and he said, You men of Galilee, why do you stand there gazing up into heaven? Duh! The reason I'm gazing up into heaven is because my master just went up into heaven. But do you remember what the angel said then? Why do you do this? He said, This same Jesus, who has gone up from among you, will do what? In the same manner will come again. And do we know when? We don't know when, do we? We don't know when. And if you're part of a ministry that tries to tell you that they know when, you need to get out of that ministry because it's not biblical. Because no one knows the time or the hour. All right? And, And it is something that we live with in anticipation and an expectation that Christ could come for his church at any time. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. So that's what he's talking about in Matthew chapter 25. This is just days before he goes to the cross, Jesus, completing his three-year tenure of ministry on earth, the three years of public ministry. And he's telling some stories to illustrate preparedness and faithfulness and readiness for his return when he comes again. 
Interesting that it happened 2,000 years ago about. So far it hasn't happened. Surely it could happen at any time. Back to our story, Matthew 25, verse 1. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. Let me break down the story as we read into five parts. And the first thing we see is that he has servants who, number one, have a serious responsibility. They are given a serious responsibility. A man going on a journey called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one, he gave five talents of money, and to another, two talents, and to another, one talent, in each according to his ability. And then he went on his journey. It's a serious responsibility when your master comes to you and gives you the amount of wealth that he entrusted these servants with. Bible commentaries debate on exactly how much these talents are worth, you need to understand that we're not talking about like the talent of playing the piano and playing the flute the way Chloe does so lovely. They're not talents like that. Talent is a term for a weight. And this was talents of silver. So it was so much weight of silver. And for us this morning, don't worry about, uh, nobody can totally prove exactly the amount. It doesn't matter. It's a story. It illustrates the point. But for our purposes, know that five talents, a talent was a lot, five talents would represent in our minds today hundreds of thousands of dollars. Probably not millions, but hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so your master calls you in and he says, I have a great responsibility for you. I'm going to entrust you with many hundreds of thousands of dollars for you to oversee in my absence. The second man he brings in, you notice, he gave two talents. That would be, in our minds, tens of thousands of dollars. Tens of thousands of dollars. Still no shabby responsibility. Still important for him to take it seriously. And the third guy that he gives one talent to is a guy that he says, yeah, because you notice number two in our story that it says each according to his ability. So this is a number one, a serious responsibility that is given assignment by capability. It is given an assignment by their capability. And so the master knows his men and he knows who he can trust with more and he knows who he can trust with little, a, a smaller amount. And so he says to the guy, this is one talent for you. Notice that the expectation was all the same. Let's read on in our story, verse 16. The man who had received the five talents went at once and he put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Evidently believing that the most sure way to keep it safe was to hide it. Don't let anybody know that he has it. Don't do anything with it. Don't polish it. Don't take care of it. Just hide it so that he could then produce it and show the master later on. Interesting, isn't it? Well, the third part that we see in our story is that the day of accountability comes, doesn't it? The third part of the story is the day of accountability. Notice what it says in verse 19. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. 
His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with few things, and I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, You have entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things, and I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. That's an interesting part of the story, isn't it? These guys evidently had no idea. I think implicit in the story is the fact that when the master went away, that they were having no idea, they would have no idea when he would return. It was an uncertain thing. But the day of accountability came. They didn't know when, they just had to be ready. Ready or not, here it comes. And then when the master comes... He wants an accounting of what he did, what they did with what he had gifted them with. All right? Show me what you've done with this. What have you done that is meaningful with this treasure that is so important to me? And I've given it to you. The day of accountability came. And I want you to notice the fourth part of the story. And it kind of sneaks in the back part of that verse in verse uh, 21 and again in verse 23. Notice that he commends both men equally. They have been faithful. That's the great challenge of the steward, isn't it? We know that from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, that a steward be found faithful. And he commends that. And both of them, equal commendation, they did what they were supposed to do. But the fourth part of the story that I want to point out is, is the privilege and opportunity. The privilege and opportunity that came with the fulfillment of this responsibility. They lived up to their potential. And so they had a great privilege in the opportunity. And notice the phrase in 21 and 23. He says to them, well done. Now that's good, right? When the boss calls you in, he's giving you a job to do, and he makes a point to say, come here, bud. I just want to tell you, you did really, really well. We like that, don't we? We like that. We try not to care. We think it's just about taking home a check. But everybody loves it when the boss says, this organization is a better place because of you. Well done. How good is that? See, a lot of us, we'll talk about this in a minute, because the parallel is heaven for us, isn't it? You just want to slip into heaven. But are you longing to hear well done? But listen to the second part of the verse. Look what it says. I will put you in charge of many things so there's increased responsibility. The more faithful you are now in reaching your potential, the greater the potential for more accomplishment in Christ later. And I take this to be even degrees of elevation in the eternal state of heaven. Wow, that's a new thought, isn't it? I'll be glad just to get into heaven. But how great will it be to be lifted up in heaven for your faithfulness now? That's what it's teaching. But then he says something that is just powerful. He says, come and share your master's happiness. You ever think about that? You ever think about the fact that Jesus would invite you to share his happiness? That's what the master is illustrating here. The master comes home. He is delighted in these two guys. And he says now, come with me. Let's go celebrate. Not only did they hear hear, well done, but they heard an invitation to join the boss at his personal party. Let me illustrate it like this. 
Let's say that your uh, favorite ball club is, uh, has just won the pennant, all right? In baseball, that's pretty big. It's not the World Series, but it's still big, and you celebrate. They pile on each other. Men do stuff like that when they're happy, all right? And they just won the pennant, okay? And there's a guy who works faithfully cleaning the stands. There's a bunch of people. The stadium is emptied. They've won the pennant. They just can't believe it. They came out of nowhere at the end of the season. Their pitching is on. Their batting is on. It's phenomenal. And the owner of the team is just ecstatic. And so he comes onto the field. He can't take in his ballpark enough. He doesn't want to leave the ballpark. And he looks way up in the stands. And there's this guy up there sweeping, you know, peanut shells and popcorn and empty cups and stuff. And he's just doing his job up there sweeping. He's been there for years. He's always done his job. And the owner is so happy, he just whistles to the guy. I can't do it. Pastor Billy used to be able to really whistle. And he says, yo, come here. Everybody looks. All the sweepers are up sweeping around. And he calls that guy, yo, come down here. And the guy comes down. And imagine if this were you, all right? And he says to you, the owner of the team says to you, you are a faithful employee. And I notice you up there working after every game, and you're part of the reason we won the pennant. This whole organization is clicking. And he puts his hand on that guy's shoulder, and he says, well done. What do you think it means to the sweeper guy to have the owner guy do that to him? It's like, it's, it's, a, it's a defining moment of his life, isn't it? But then he does this. He says, I want you to go home and get your family, knock off work right now. Go get your family and your kids and bring them in. We're having a huge barbecue here out in left field. And then we're going to go get on my yacht and we're going to go up and down the, the bay. And I want you to stay a few nights at my, at my condo in Key Biscayne. And I just want you to really enjoy yourself and you just be a part of it. I'm going to celebrate this pennant and I want you to celebrate it with me. That's what the master is doing here. The master says to them, well done. And if that's not enough, he then says, I'm going to give you increased responsibility. That trust means so much. But then he says, come and share my joy. Is that the most meaningful thing that ever happened to this guy? I would say it is. That the owner, the manager, the master would look at the servant and say, enter into my joy with me. Come party with me. Oh. Are they so glad that they carried out their responsibility or what? But notice at the end of the story, it ends sadly. We have this serious responsibility, an assignment given based upon capability. The day of accountability came. There was privilege and opportunity that came with faithfulness. But notice number five, the end of the story is a sobering possibility The man, verse 24, who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid. And I went out and I hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. Like, see how good I am? I buried it and now it's here. And he unwraps this crusty handkerchief or whatever. The master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. You knew that I harvest by your own words. You have acquitted yourself. You have condemned yourself. 
You know, you just said that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. For everyone who has will be given more and he will have an abundance. And whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Whoa. I don't know the extent of the teaching of this parable. All parables are designed to make a key point. The point of this parable is to be found faithful. But I think there's at least an implication in the teaching that there are certain people who claim to be servants of Christ. Maybe you know one. Maybe you are one. You talk the talk, but you don't really walk the walk. And you've been given great resources in Christ. And you have acted like you've received it, but you have hidden it. In fact, nobody even knows that you're one of the master's men or women or servants because you have hidden it so well. And in this story, the reality is he never was one of his, evidently, because he was cast out into utter darkness. Get away from me. I also do not believe at all that Jesus, in verse Uh, 28 is teaching the redistribution of wealth. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. He's not teaching that. You know what he's teaching? He's teaching that when he has resourced somebody and the master has resourced the servant, the servant needs to produce and servants who produce have greater opportunity to keep producing and servants who don't produce are removed from the business. It's the responsibility of stewardship. It's interesting, isn't it? Let's bring it home to life, shall we? To our real life and make some application. I've already emphasized a couple of these things, but let's just put it together in our mind. First of all, what's he talking about? We've already kind of implied it and said it. Who's the master in the story? Who's the master? Say it. It's Jesus. It's Christ, right? And he's gone away on a long journey, hasn't he? He's gone on a long journey and we don't know when he's coming back. And who are the servants in the story? It's us. It would be his church today, really, right? Servants of Christ, those who name his name, those who are followers. And what is the great wealth that he's given? I think when you study the passage and you really apply it, the direct teaching of the passage is that ultimately it is the gospel is the great resource. And the question is, as Christ has given us this great resource, and he's gone on a journey, and he's coming back, and we don't know when, what have we done with the great resource? Have you invested your life in it? Have you multiplied it? Have you used it to be a springboard of your life, a motivation of your life, and is the reality of the fact that the master is going to return and hold you accountable for the resource, does that do anything in you at all? It sure ought to, hadn't it? Now, let me make clear that I am not talking about the fact that someday when Jesus comes for his church and we stand before him, that we will stand to be evaluated as to whether or not we are culpable for our own sinfulness. Because Romans clearly, Romans 5.1 clearly says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 talks about our justification, or else I flip-flopped them. I flip-flopped them. And 
that, that we as believers in Christ, all right, stand robed in the righteousness of Christ. There is no firm foundation for our salvation other than grace through faith in Christ alone, that he died on the cross for our sin, that his blood watches, washes away all sin. There is, there is no other way into heaven. There is no other way for the forgiveness of sin than you to and me to admit our sinfulness and receive the fact that Jesus Christ carried our sin. We don't stand before him someday in a manner of evaluation as believers in Christ to decide whether we've done good enough works to get into heaven. That's not how it works. Our salvation is by grace. That's undeserved, unmerited favor. By faith, that's no works. Only by believing that Jesus is the Christ. And that God raised him from the dead after he died on the cross for your sin. That's salvation. And we are robed in his righteousness. What a great thought that I don't have to be afraid of my eternal destiny hanging in the balance, some kind of big scale where my good works and my bad works. And if my good works outweigh my bad works, I get into heaven. But I think the reality of this teaching is clear. That believers in the Lord Christ, once they are saved, are called to serve Christ. We have the great resource of the gospel. And what is it that I'm investing my life in? And have I lived up to my potential? Am I out there trying to saw hack down trees with a chainsaw without the motor started? We've got all kinds of resource in Christ. And yet we've minimized it. So what should motivate us? What brings this home to us? First of all, is the privilege of the master's trust. Number one, the privilege of the master's trust. Think about this. Do you live with any kind of wow factor? I said, wow factor. Like, wow, I am a servant of Christ. You see, the guy that had one talent given to him, he didn't have much wow factor, did he? I don't think it meant too much to him to be a servant of his master. But if you stop and think that In Christ, God has chosen you and we are now servants of the living Christ. And we have a captain, King Jesus. And it's our joy to carry out his commands. When you live like that and you get out of bed in the morning and you think in terms, first and foremost, of your personal identity being wrapped up as a servant or a slave of Christ, then your motivation is to please the master. That's like a wow thing. Wow. Think about it. Does he need you? You think Jesus needs you? You think God's up there worried about things falling apart if you're not part of it? No. But in his sovereign plan of the ages and by his grace, he loves to have us enter into his kingdom and be his servants and be used in this divine relationship of the sovereign and the human. And we come together in Christ, robed in the righteousness of Christ. And then I get to be, wow, a servant of Christ. The privilege of the master's trust leads us to think out of this story of the priority of the master's treasure. The priority of the master's treasure. Do you think in terms of your wealth? Do you think in terms of what you have? Or do you think in terms of all of the priorities of Christ and his agenda and his church? Why we're here on earth. The third thing that we have is the problem with the master's timing. Here's what I think is the crux of the matter. The problem with the master's timing is this. I can lay on the couch and watch TV because ain't nothing going to happen today. Right? I'll get around to it someday. 
You see, we do not live with a sense of urgency, do we? And so we're content to be out there trying to saw down trees. Look how good we're doing. And we haven't even started the motor, the engine. We haven't even done that yet. Because why? Because we're not worried about the master. Can you imagine cutting trees for a living and the, and the boss man shows up and you're out there grinding on trees with your chainsaw not started? What in the world are you doing? Cutting trees, Jank, man, cutting trees. Then start the motor. And I wonder if Jesus came today and walked down the aisle, if he wouldn't look at us and say, what are you doing? What are you doing? I've resourced you. I've given you so much, starting with spiritual blessings and ending with material blessings. What are you doing? You say, we're, we're sharing the gospel. We're cutting down trees. We're really making progress. And he said, you're out of your ever-loving mind. You're not even scratching the surface. Again, no works involved here that somehow I've got to climb over fences to, to make God smile upon me. But clearly, our New Testament teaches that the redeemed ones in Christ have the great privilege of being the servants of the living Christ. And there is a standard for living for servants, and it is produce, produce, be found faithful, be found faithful, and faithful ones someday will hear their master say when he comes, come here, come here. Well done, well done. Let me add to you some more. And furthermore, you come to my place tonight. We're having a barbecue. You want to hear that from Jesus? I have no idea if it's going to be like that. But somehow we're going to enter into his joy at a higher level when we start the motor and reach our potential. And we serve the way he's called us to serve. I have no other idea what this passage is teaching if it is not teaching that there is a greater level of potential for servants than where they started out. So in 2011, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? I have no idea how God has resourced you specifically. I have no idea of the vision. I have no idea of the heartbeat. I have no idea of the compulsion that you have every once in a while. When a commercial's on and you're not thinking about your show and you think, I should really do this. I should make some pea soup and take it down to my neighbor. And I should share the love of Christ with them. Nah, they probably don't like pea soup. No, you should get up and make pea soup and take it down to your neighbor and share the love of Christ and be a servant. I don't know how, when, what, who you're going to touch. I just know this. I'm not sure as the, in essence, CEO of Fellowship Bible Church that I am convinced that we've really started the motor yet. I'm not sure we've really reached our potential. How about you? As individuals and as a corporate congregation that are sold out with a passion for the talents we hold in our hand, the wealth of the master, and then the return of the master, and then the well done of the master. Should change our lives, shouldn't it? Let's bow. Father, Please forgive us for our complacency. Please bring into perspective where we need change. And show us, Father, how to live the Christian life in this generation. 
Show us, Father, how to take the resources, beginning with the treasury of the gospel of Jesus, and then all the other surpluses with which you've padded our lives, and that our heart drive would be to be found faithful as servants and to enter into your joy and to be ready for your return and to be found faithful at your return, having no idea when that might happen. Father, work in hearts today. You know those that you're drawing unto yourself. Help them to admit their sinfulness and follow after Christ. Show them how much you love them. Father, for those of us who are cold and complacent and in a rut, wake us up and remind us this could be the year we look Jesus in the eyes, face to face, in real time. It's in Jesus' name we pray, Lord. Amen.